You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. Oh, this is going to be a really wonderful uh, section of Scripture to look at. I'm in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. I'm in verse 35. I think the best way to do that, I'm just going to read this short section here. In, John, in Matthew's Gospel, excuse me, uh, chapter 9, verse 35, and then I'm going to pray and we'll get into the teaching portion of our Sunday. And so, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So you can highlight, if you want, in your Bible, gospel of the kingdom, because I'll return to that a little bit exhaustively in a few moments. Now, continuing on. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So Jesus, we come now at this moment uh, to love you and to be built up by you to have the word of God and the spirit of God to animate inside us, to fill us and to baptize us. God, that we would meet and encounter you, the living God. This is our our desperate plea and cry that we would know you all the more. So come now, God, by sovereign grace and speak to your children this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. amen. Okay, so this message is called why the warfare against the Jesus Revolution? So there was a movie that came out called Jesus Revolution, and I hope you guys see it. It's an incredible movie, true story about our family of churches that the ranch church belongs to. Our, our actual legal name is the ranch at Calvary Chapel Church. We are, we are actually birthed out of the Calvary Chapel ministry and movement that actually took place in a beach revival in Orange County in the 60s and 70s and gave birth to an ultimate global and worldwide movement. So we're actually part of that. We're, we're children and children many generations down from that, inheritors of their tremendous blessing. So I don't actually mean it quite the way related to that movie per se, why the warfare against the Jesus revolution. The Jesus revolution is a revolution of love. And what's fascinating about the gospel is that we come to talk about that Christ in us, the hope of glory comes to come to every single person's life to baptize and fill you with the love of God. This is what we're talking about. This is what the gospel is about. It's what Christ is saying in these verses. It's what he's doing with these disciples as he wants them to know certain things. And so the Jesus revolution is a revolution of love. And so it's fascinating that there's a warfare against it. It's fascinating that there's a conflict about it. And so the Jesus revolution being a revolution of love, well, somebody out there hates it. Who hates it? Say Satan. All right, the devil hates it. The devil actually hates it. But his end is near. As an old hymn says, his his doom is sure. And so his end is near, his end is here. And so there are kingdoms, this is what Jesus is referring to, that are actually clashing and they're in battling. And it's really fascinating because ours is a Jesus revolution of love because we're inheritors, inheritors of a gospel truth from the apostles and from Christ to bring the love of Christ to everyone. 
So related to this gospel, related to the kingdom, look in your Bible here, just by way of repetition, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And it came with tremendous effect, healing every disease and every affliction. And then these crowds were there. And I'll explain more of that in just a moment. But one of the things that I want to say is that the gospel of the kingdom saves sinful people. Like it saves us. It saves us. It's this most beautiful and awesome thing to be saved. It's the most incredible thing to know that our guilt and our guilt can be taken away. And if you can't comprehend that, if you don't understand the nature of guilt related to before God, then just think of a popular phrase which is out there, which is called shame. And everyone has shame, right? Everyone has it. Everyone has this shame, this kind of emotional condition that seems to grab them from time to time. So the gospel comes and says to Christ, you can be done with guilt. Nice time to say amen. Right? And you can be done with shame, which is wonderful. These are, these are spiritual truth. Because my question that and Christ is asking to everybody out there, how are you getting rid of your guilt and shame? You're standing in front of the mirror throwing water there. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any. And then you have your power words, which your power seminars, and you listen to all of that, and you go, okay, okay, I'm free of guilt. I'm free of shame. I don't feel any shame. I don't feel any shame. Oh, I feel more shame. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the cycle of all of that. Gospel is granting us freedom. Christians are not tormented. They're free. They're absolutely free. And if we have sin or depravity that comes to us, in Christ, that depravity, if it says hello, Jesus comes upon us and he makes it say goodbye. And that's our, our, our hope in Christ. So just a few thoughts here now. To move into this. So I want to do, I want to do something I haven't done this in a while. I'm actually going to go to the chapter before to help you understand this chapter for right, right here talking where Jesus says, you know, and he went through all the cities and proclaiming, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. So I'm going to give you a cursory look uh, very quickly at chapter nine. So you can understand the buildup to this comment. So I'm in chapter nine, if you want to follow along your Bible. And again, I'm just going to make a few comments. But in verse one, Jesus is actually hearing a paralytic. So someone actually has some very serious paralysis in their body. They've come before God and Jesus heals them. I think that's a pretty good day, wouldn't you? That'd be fantastic. But Jesus is going to continue. He's going to see Matthew in verse nine. So depending upon how your Bible is laid out, you might have these like in paragraph divisions, which are helpful and nice. But uh, here in verse 9, uh, Jesus is going to call Matthew, uh, someone who was a tax collector, somebody who was socially rejected, somebody who had no friends. Ever had no friends? That's not fun. <laughs> right? You might know people, right? You might socially know people, but how many friends do you have? This man had no friends. He was a tax collector. He was, he was just really hated in society. And so now we're in chapter 9, verse 14. Uh, there's questions about fasting. He's going to talk about that. Then, as if that's not enough, in verse 18, uh, there's, there's somebody here who comes to him. Verse 18 says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. And so all we know is this person known as a ruler, uh, sort of the top of society, and his daughter has just died. 
Right, so as a pastor, and I know we've all lived on this journey together, having adult children or children pass away is just a terror for mom and dad. It's hurt so much. And so here this, this ruler, his, 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 his kid has died, and he, he comes. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He's going to kneel before him. He's going to get down. He's this man who everybody else kneels before. But he's going to kneel before Jesus, and he's simply going to say, he's going to say, my daughter's died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And he goes, Okay, let's go do it. And so now he's going to go and heal this girl while he's walking, while he's walking. Somebody else grabs his cloak. He grabs, you know, the outer of his garment, this woman who wants to be healed. And power leaves Jesus and goes out to everybody like that and goes out to her and she's healed. He has not yet raised this girl from the dead. All right, I want you to understand the burden of Christ, right? This man kneels before him and Jesus is going to, whatever he was doing that day, maybe just trying to have a moment, and then all of a sudden, okay, great. Well, let's go on the long walk. We're going to go heal your daughter. And he's walking. Now this crowd is there. And now she gets, he gets grabbed. And there's more healing that goes on. And then in verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, your daughter. Uh, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was healed. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, so he has to go through all of that. He's in a new house. Now there's all the sort of culture of the Jews at that time, flute players and crowd making commotion. He makes them all go away and he heals her. Verse 27, there's two blind men and Jesus is going to heal them. And then in verse 32, they were, as they were going away, someone was a demon. Look at this description there. Demon oppressed man, mute was brought to him and the demon was cast out. The man could speak. All right. So all of that, all of that is what is, what is the backstory here to, to, to Jesus saying, you know what? Did you guys like what I did? Right? Did you like what I did? I cast out a demon. I healed this person. I ministered to that person. I loved on this person. I stopped what I was doing. And I went and I helped somebody else. I ministered to them. I served them. I brought the gospel of the kingdom to them. But Jesus is going to say, that harvest is actually plentiful. But there's few laborers. So I am going to come into your life and I'm going to transform it and I'm going to send you out as one of my laborers. Every single one of us. It's not a pastor thing. It's, it's, an, it's a Christian thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's a gift. It's a privilege. And that's what he's going to do. The gospel of the kingdom, what is it? Well, the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus uses this phrase, is actually the rule of God. It's like this realm. It's a realm over his people, over planet earth, through a new covenant God made in the cross and resurrection. It's a realm and rule of God. Now, you might say, okay, why is this important? Well, it's important to know your Bible, but it's also important not just for the academics of it, because this is actually some of the things to understand by which how you can get prayers answered. If you would like God to answer your prayers a lot faster than he does, raise your hand, right? That's all of us, right? Yes, answer my prayers, Jesus, a lot faster than you do sometimes. Well, some of that, some of that wraps around understanding this gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom will ultimately give birth to a rapture and a second coming. The gospel of the kingdom will come with power to heal and change. The gospel of the kingdom will change everything. That's why 
of that phrase that I've been sharing with you guys somewhat repetitively over the summer, that when Jesus at the, everything changes, when Jesus is at the center of everything. Understand that. See, everything's going to change when Jesus is at the center of everything. That is the effect of it. So, so those are kingdoms. Okay, so I want you to understand that. So, so now we have to do something uh, that I need you to sort of focus on. We have to talk about there are actually different kingdoms. And now that's where we get into somewhat conflict. Uh, I, I think the church actually is somewhat, when we talk globally, a, a little bankrupt right now of men and women who would write and speak so thoroughly with biblical precision and excellence on this matter. There was a day not long ago when there were some really, really good men, men like uh, Chuck Colson, if you know him historically, uh, or even another, another man, uh, Dr. Walter Martin, who had a great influence on me when I was much younger. And these were men who wrote about the kingdom with uh, you know, robust uh, intellectual strength, but, but a true spirit. And so they could explain that there's actually kingdoms that are clashing, and that actually explains the life around us. So for example, there's the kingdom of God, there's a kingdom of man, there's a kingdom of Satan, there's a kingdom of Christ. There's more than those kingdoms, but I'm just giving you an illustration of those. So so the kingdom of man is something that I'm going to talk about uh, at length right now. There's also a millennial kingdom, and these kingdoms are actually clashing. They have to do with where we're going as, as, a, as a planet, as a, as a globe. Okay, so the kingdom of man. Let's talk about the kingdom of man. Let me give you an idea of what this kingdom of man is because it wars against the kingdom of God. And, and if you're sort of awake, you understand some of the basics of that that the humanity that is unsaved tends to war against the kingdom of God. So let me give you a little example. So there was something, I'm going to put it in the 1800s, just because it's an easy way to talk about it, called the Enlightenment Project. Everybody say the word enlightenment. Okay, you guys are doing good. The Enlightenment Project. You don't need to know too much more about that. Well, this is actually after the Civil War when it comes to fruition. And here's what all of it says, the Enlightenment Project. Are you ready for it? Man is the center. It's fill in the gap. Man is the center. Man knows how, and then just fill in the gap. Man knows how to be just. Man knows how to uh, educate people. Man knows how to equip people. Man knows what is right and wrong, right and wrong. In every situation, man knows not God. Now, what's fascinating about this, remember I just told you it was like right after the Civil War when it really comes to fruition? Like, this is, what's, this is what's so fascinating. This is the contradiction. Okay, so the Civil War, the new academics on the Civil War is that 750,000 men died. That number used to be lower. But the new academics on it, wow, much closer to a million. And we had a Civil War. Why? Why? Oh, I know, because... Because all these people wanted free labor off of black people. And so they enslaved them. That's, that's when man is at the center. That's what you get, right? That kind of wickedness, that kind of evil. And so now we have a civil war, and then humans go, I know. We have it so together. We have it so together. And so man is simply at the center. 
And then history goes on. There's something called modernity. Something called modernity project. This is kind of around World War I. Gives real birth in popular culture, World War II. And modernity simply says, okay, man's not at the center. You know what it is? Science is at the center. All right, so science is at the center. Now look at I love science. Jesus made science. All right, but science at the center Wow, that's really amazing because science at the center says we mere mortals will tell other mere mortals there is no God. <laughs> Think again. Then there's something called post-modernity. This is the last one. So post-modernity, which comes right after Vietnam, do you notice these are wars? You notice this, right? So humans tend to have a response. There's these battles, these wars, it's tragic. And then they try and figure out society without God. And then there's another war, there's another series of conflicts. Then they try and figure out society without God. And these are examples of it. So after Vietnam, there's something called post-modernity, which really hits popular culture, which simply says, my tribe, my people, they are actually at the center and that takes root. And so post-modernity very easily says, no one can tell me. All right, so now we're talking about our current world. No one can tell me, but I can tell you. All right, that's the hypocrisy of it. That's the inconsistency of it. So no one can tell me, but I can tell you. Jesus says there's a gospel of the kingdom and beautiful things are coming. And so when Jesus was talking here, he's also referring to something called a millennial kingdom. And I think you're going to like this a lot. So if you've heard of the millennial kingdom, raise your hand. Okay, so some of you have heard this millennial kingdom. So this is really interesting. So this is found in Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20. So we talk about the gospel of the kingdom. There's these other kingdoms, the future kingdom called the millennial kingdom. So let me give you some ideas of what this millennial kingdom is like, where God is taking all of us, and it's beautiful and wonderful. So in chapter 19 of Revelation, chapter 20, there's this millennial kingdom. And the first thing you have to know about the millennial kingdom is that Jesus is king. I mean, it's like, it's like he is real all around. He has come back after something called the rapture, after something called the second coming, which the Bible talks about in depth, and he has come back, and now there's this new rule here, and Jesus is king. Let me tell you what it's like when Jesus is king. Love, love, and righteousness abound with everyone. Now, hey, can we say that now? Can we say that now? No, we can't say that love and righteousness abounds with everyone. Not at all. Not at all. But here, here in that millennial kingdom, that's true. And it will rule and reign, and there will be no devil to stop it, not even for a second. Second thing related to a reference in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, there'll be world peace. So we all want peace. You want peace. I want peace. But this will actually be the peace of God found in Christ in righteousness. So we, we will not be warring politically. We will, none of that will take place. Uh, now, this is a great one. Uh, I, this is the best way I could say this phrase. Okay, so, so we're Jesus is king, world peace. So we're going to have joy all over the place. Like this is the deck, joy all over the place. Who wants to sign up for joy all over the place, right? Okay, so there. All right, so in the millennial kingdom, Tylenol does not exist. <laughs> Neither does Prozac. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, it doesn't exist. Our, our bodies are different, and earth is very different. There's actually no depression. There's no illness of body. Uh, things are so radically different, and we are supernaturally, naturally happy the way God designed us. 
without even trying. I mean, it's just what God is doing. So this is the millennial kingdom, joy all over the place. Next, according to Isaiah 65, verse 20, humans are flourishing for God's glory. So what this means is that right now we have poor people in the millennial kingdom, we have none. What this means is that right now, if you, if you try and, you know, you want to eat organic, right? If you're like me, you go for a run. Okay, then you do your pulse. And, you know, then you're going to have your little meal afterwards. Like, this is my recovery meal. Okay, I'm going to do this in the blender, you know. And you, guess what? You recover all the time. <laughs> and, and, and we actually flourish because the plant life, the botany, all of that flourishes so abundantly. And it actually is healing for our bodies. The things that we eat, the things we consume, is not the manufactured food that we have right now. We have human flourishing. Arts, the arts just bloom. And science just blooms. And everyone has. This is the millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 says, The animals are united with humans. And so this in Isaiah is, you know, the, the lamb and the lion lying down. And so, so our animals are actually the way God designed us. They don't bite us. They don't kill us. Uh, uh, they actually cooperate with us. No, I don't think they can talk. That's in children's books in Narnia. But they probably act like that a little bit. Next, in millennial kingdom, humans live in harmony with each other. We do. We actually get along, Right? We don't get along right now. I don't think I need to prove that. Uh, you could just, I don't know, go to, go to almost any public society, like, like public meeting, you know, any kind of uh, political thing or school board thing or whatever. You know, it's like it's clash and clash and clash. And I'm not making any judgment on any of that. But in the millennial kingdom, the transformation is so incredible. Humans actually are united together. Sin is severely limited. And our bodies heal. It's incredible. Incredible. That's a life. And we are here. And so right now we are about bringing the gospel the way Jesus mentions here. Because he's releasing all of us to bring his love. So more people can have that. There's a gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Here's what I want you to write down. I want you to write it. It restores your humanity. If you don't know anything about this today, just write down, it restores your humanity. And Jesus is going to use a couple words here that are fascinating. So verse 36, I'm in, I'm in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Everybody say the word compassion. Okay, he had compassion on them. So here's what that word means in the original language. Have you ever like felt intense and you have to get going? Like it could be, happy. It could be sad. It could be, um, you know, a wedding. It could be something tragic, but, but you, you feel it and you feel it to your body, you know, like you feel it. So this is the idea that when you're, when you're actually, when you're actually really excited or really stressed, you feel it in your body, generally in your stomach in kind of your bowels. And so that's the reference to this, that you feel it to the very, very core of your humanity. And so when Jesus saw the crowds, he had already done all the works that we had just since had, had looked at earlier. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them which meant to the very core of who he is, he felt them. He felt their pain. He felt the challenge of their life. He felt it. And he wanted, he wanted to heal them and take care of them. So this word compassion is found in a handful of other references in the Bible. 
and I bring it up because, because one of the things that you want to do when you pray and one of the things you want to do when you minister to others is you want to have compassion. But when you come before God, you do want him to feel what you're feeling and ask him to have compassion and mercy over your circumstances. This word is seen in other parts of the gospel before God does something incredible. So for example, in Mark chapter one, verse 41, it's when Jesus says to someone, be clean. But earlier before that, it said he had compassion. He felt it deep in his humanity. Luke chapter seven, verse, thing, verse 13, excuse me, there was a, a, a widow whose son had died and Jesus is gonna raise him from the dead and he felt that compassion deep inside him. And then one of my favorites, which is a popular story, it's of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. This is the prodigal, it's a story. And so Jesus has, has it's just telling the story of, of this son who actually looked at father who had a lot of financial means. And he says to his father, I no longer want to be your son, but I want all of your money. What would you do? Yeah. I think you do that, right? Okay, but Jesus is trying to make a point, trying to tell a story. We call it the prodigal son, but it's really about the amazing father. And so the father in that story, he gives the money to the son. Well, you know what happens? He wastes it. He wastes all of his talent. He finds himself homeless, absolutely homeless. He finds himself absolutely impoverished and with no one to help. And he, and he thinks to himself, well, my dad has a couple companies in a business. Maybe I'll just go and I'll be the janitor. Dad will hire me back to be the janitor, and at least I can have a job and dignity, and at least I can eat some kind of food with some sort of self-respect. Maybe Dad will hire me back. And so the son is finally coming. He's coming back to Dad. And in the story of Luke chapter 15, now to verse 20, it says that the father saw the son finally coming back. Now listen, when the, father, when the son asked for all of his inheritance, it meant in earthly terms for us that he had to break apart the family trust. So if anybody here has great, wonderful financial means and you have things kind of wrapped together uh, in, in sort of trusts or whatever, when you break them apart, it's a big deal and it can hurt everybody else in the family system. That's exactly what happened. So he's injured his brother, he's injured everybody else financially, right? We all take those things serious. And so the father sees the son coming back. What is the father's response? It says he had compassion. The father felt deep to the core of his humanity. An incredible love for the son would finally come back. And so the phrase which tears me up every time I read it in scripture, it says he ran. He, he didn't sit there with his arms crossed, you know. See how he's going to make this right. See how he's going to make this right. You're going to make this right. Mm, okay, well, you're going to work 35 years. <laughs> In order to run, he had to pick up his outer garments. They didn't wear jeans. He had to pick up his outer garments. Be a little embarrassing, to be quite frank. And he's going to run. To grab his son. It was actually come home. Because the father cares about nothing else. The father cares nothing else about the safety of his tribe and his children. Cares nothing else except running to that one which would come home to be back. You want to be back with me? That's all I need. 
That's all I need. I'll wrap my arms around you. I'll run for you and let you know. So this word compassion is seen in a handful of other snapshots throughout the Bible where God is going to do great works. And it is incumbent upon us to beseech him that God would once again have a unique and kind of compassion into our circumstances where he says, I run. I run to you, for you in those things. I run to them. And so to us, he says, we are part of an economy, if you want to say it that way. Verse 37 says to his disciples, the harvest is what does it say in your Bible? Say it out loud. Plentiful. Harvest is plentiful. A harvest is plentiful. There's people that look out around the world and go, oh, nobody wants to come to Jesus. Really? <laughs> Everybody wants to come to Christ. They just don't know. They need different kinds of ministry, different kinds of love, different kinds of patience, different kinds of understanding, uh, different kinds of mercy that they would see God. But the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. This is a, an impassionate cry and plea. Pray earnestly. That phrase sort of means that you don't care about, about, about what other people think about you. You don't, you don't care about sort of social convenience. You know, you just are before God praying and crying out to him, do this miracle which needs to be done right now, God, whether it's to comfort my heart or move in certain ways. And so he prays, send out laborers into his harvest field. And so lastly, as we run for home, the way this happens is that you actually have to allow yourself by God to be engaged in training. You, you have to, it's not about trying. It's not like, hey, try harder. No, you actually have to train. Actually, you have to train yourself. You have to be preparing yourself. You have to be engaged in that training, which you do in every other realm of life. But in this circumstance, there's a training under the gospel to be able to bring that same love and compassion to everybody else. And I believe that God is calling you right here on a Jesus mission. I believe that. That's why I'm standing here. I believe with every single thing inside me is calling you to a Jesus mission. Right here, right now, he's calling on you. He's burning inside of you that you would receive a Jesus mission. What is it? I don't know. That's between you and God. And you're thinking. And maybe you're counting the cost. But you're thinking. But you're to go on a Jesus mission. What that looks like is so wonderful and beautiful, unique to you. That's awesome. You need to go on a Jesus mission. I'm not talking about a seven-day trip. I'm talking about a 70-year wonderful journey. A Jesus mission. I believe right now, burning in your heart, some of you know that, many of you know that, deep desire of your heart that in some way, shape, or form, God would use you. And God would use you greater than he has before. And you can think of all the setbacks you've had. You can think of all the failures you've had. And Jesus says, I have blood and mercy for all of that. Your sins, I wash them away. 
You come home, and I'm going to send you on my Jesus gospel mission. So church, if that's you, in all seriousness, that Jesus gospel mission, if that's you, I need you to stand up right now and acknowledge that that truth is burning inside you. And where you stand, I'm going to pray and release Christ's power over your life. Stand up right now if that's you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know there's people far in the black. I can't see you, but this is for you. And so as an act of faith now, I'm just going to ask you to lift holy hands in prayer like this. And I'm going to speak words of life over you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you now in the power of the Holy Spirit to be baptized to be his servant, his evangelist, his agents of mercy, of love, and good, to receive anointing now that God baptizes you and refreshes you and calls you to minister and serve in his name, not in natural means, but now in supernatural means through the word of God. I baptize you because God has anointed and called you. He knows your name. He knows who you are, and he has now equipped you for this task. I baptize you and I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to go now and be used of God for great good, to name the name of Christ, to name the name of Christ's authority, to bring his love and mercy to our world, which desperately needs him. I, I empower you to be trained and equipped and to be bold and courageous and lovers of God and lovers of good. I bless you now. I seal this holy and sacred prayer in the name of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I bless you now, my church, my friends, to go in peace. Do exactly this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.